Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Ancient religions stood on a simple premise, find a way to please the gods or face their wrath. Are you afraid of bad weather? Make a sacrifice. Worried about your family? Make a sacrifice. Afraid of impending war or plague? Make a sacrifice. Like all people in power, the ancient gods lived off the backs of their subjects. Since such gods reflect the behavior of those who make them, it's easy to see human religion for what it is. Ritual betrayal of your neighbor for the sake of your security. But what if there were a god who refused to dwell in the temple and who could not be pleased no matter how hard his subjects tried to impress him? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 144 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue with the Gospel of Mark. And I promise you, Richard, I don't make this stuff up. The Bible is talking about fatherhood and sons and their relationship and what it means and what the implications are. And we have it right away in verse 9 of Mark. God is often looking to see if his children are truly his children. In Hosea, the problem is God's wife has been sleeping around and she has a baby. And the Lord has to figure out, is this his child or not? Pre-DNA, how do you run a paternity test? Wait to see if the child looks and acts like the father. And the child is going to look and act like their father. So the way that you determine whose child it is, is you look to see what father they look like. I talk about it in Hosea as the paternity test. Just because you are declared to be a son doesn't necessarily mean you will stay faithful to that sonship. You may actually act like you're someone else's son and therefore annul that declaration. Now, the father can always say, you're still my son, I don't care, which we saw in the parable of the prodigal son. But keep in mind, this sonship is something that can be declared ahead of time, but someone must stay faithful to that. Genesis is the key for understanding the baptism of Jesus, because in Genesis, God is slaving the way a mother slaves for her children. He does all the work. He prepares everything. He sets the table. He ensures that there's a situation in which his children can live. And his children refers to all life in the setting for life in Genesis because he is the father of all. So in this motherly way, he sets the table and provides so that everyone's looked after. And each time he does it, he looks and he says, oh, look what I did. I'm happy with it. He's not happy 
with what his creation did. He's happy with himself and the work of his own hands. That's extremely important. God is looking at creation and ultimately looking at the human being as the work of his hands and saying, I'm pleased, and looking at what his creation does with its hands, specifically man, and he is not pleased with what man creates. God builds the wilderness, the created world as we've received it, and we destroy the created world by building temples and structures of stone. That's the theme in Genesis. But the key for this morning's reading that we're talking about is that he is pleased with the work of his own hands. And here, in the baptism of Jesus, God is pleased again. Not pleased with Jesus because of what Jesus does or says, but pleased with Jesus because Jesus is the word that he speaks, and he's pleased with his word. And his word is what makes creation live. This is what he has begotten. So, when he's pleased with Jesus... He's referring to the work of his own hands, his own speech, his own word, his debar. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The allusion to Elijah, the setting of that text, at the Jordan, at the edge, at the boundaries of the institutional community, we're still in that space and that's where Jesus is going now, too. If we focus on what space means here, you know, it's the northern edge of the Galilee is where Jesus is coming from to go to the eastern edge of the Jordan. This is all happening as far away from the center as possible. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. In the beginning of Mark, the spirit can't be controlled. The spirit goes wherever the spirit goes, and no one can lay claim to it. So just as Jesus appears in the wilderness, just as John the Baptist slash Elijah appears in the wilderness, now the spirit appears in the wilderness to make it clear that this is where God is. He's not in Jerusalem. This point cannot be stressed enough. God is not in Jerusalem. God is not in your temple. It's Ezekiel all over again. And as he comes out of the water, the spirit is then over the waters. This is a new act of creation with the spirit like a dove descending upon him. So with the spirit on the waters as he's coming out, but instead of just the face of the waters, it's coming down on Jesus. And a voice came out of the heavens, and I love this translation of Uranos because it implies not a place that you can grab, which is how people think of the heavens in English, but it's the heavens correctly in a scriptural sense. It's a place that human beings can't reach, can't grasp, can't control, like the spirit. It's beyond their reach. This is God's domain. You can't imagine, as the Hellenists do, that there's a Mount Olympus. There is no Mount Olympus. It's the heavens. So from the heavens, suddenly you hear a voice. And what does the voice say? You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And the argument I'm making, Richard, is the argument I've made previously about the Lucan nativity narrative, that whenever God is talking about being pleased with respect to Jesus Christ, it's the continuation 
of his act of being pleased with the work of his own hands in Genesis. That's the point I'm trying to stress. And this changes everything because people imagine if they act a certain way, God will be pleased. No, he will not be pleased with you. If you act the way he tells you to, and it turns out well, he will be pleased that he told you what he told you. This is very difficult, very difficult in our culture to understand because we're so individualistic. You weren't the child of your father because of your DNA. You were the child of your father because your father said you were. If you look at the Roman legal context, once you declare someone to be your son, then they're your son. The declaration means everything. And I don't want people to think, oh, well, maybe he wasn't his son before that. He wasn't eternally begotten. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in this context, this is the moment that it is clear that he is his son. The word genuine, as Father Paul Tarazzi used to say in class all the time, the word genuine is a Latin term that refers to the act of a patrician placing a slave or a child on his knee. It did not matter who sired the child. The point is that when the patrician put a child on his knee, the child became genuine because he adopted the child. And what that meant legally is not now you get the best birthday presents or now you get to sleep in the best bed in the house. What that meant is that now you have a right to inheritance. That's what it means to be a son. To be a son means you get the inheritance of the father. This is the heir. This is the child through the line of Isaac. This is God's promise in Genesis being fulfilled. This is God completing his work in Genesis and undoing the destruction that humanity wrought by building structures of stone in place of God's garden. So it's important to understand this backdrop because it cancels out our deeds and our ability to please God on the one hand but it also calls into question our understanding of the validity of human civilization. Mark is coming out both guns blazing against civilization, which is not a new idea in scripture, but it's a radical idea to posit in the Roman Empire. Now, immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. There you have it again, Richard. We're not far enough out. We're just at the border. we got to go further into the wilderness. He has to go beyond the Jordan. So he went from beyond Galilee to beyond the Jordan. He has to go, like you say, farther out into the wilderness, where civilization cannot protect you. In the wilderness, you depend completely on God for your protection. It's also interesting that it's the spirit that impelled him, because I keep thinking of what we were studying in Acts 13, where it's the Holy Spirit that keeps sending people out. It keeps sending Paul and Barnabas out. It keeps sending the missionaries out so that the word will go out to all the corners of the earth. The spirit has this very specific function to make sure that the word continues to be preached. And this is what happens. The spirit is impelling Jesus out into the wilderness so that he depends completely on his father. And he then is prepared as the word to be delivered to the people. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. He's both tempted by Satan, so it means he's exposed. Satan is able to do what he wants with him, if we take the example of Job. And he's with the wild beasts, so he's entirely at the mercy of Satan and nature. Yet, God 
his father continue to take care of him through the angels who are ministering to him. So showing that he was out in the wilderness and he stayed out there not for two days until he got hungry, but for 40 days so that he would completely depend on his father to take care of him. This is the first test, so to speak, before he comes back to so-called civilization to preach this word. The word test is absolutely correct. And folks listening to the podcast shouldn't get caught up in questions of Jesus's perfection. The point is that in scripture, Satan functions as the employee of God, as God's prosecuting attorney. It's not like the Chinese yin and yang, as though you have balance between good and evil. That is not scripture. In scripture, there is no balance. There is only the Lord. No. You might find him evil, you might find him good, that's your problem, but he's the Lord, and everybody works for him, including Satan. That is the key. So God has allowed the situation to occur where Satan would go to function as the cross-examiner of Jesus in the wilderness. That is what's happening. It is putting Jesus to the test, but don't think of it in terms of personal piety the way people typically do. Think of it in terms of a courtroom. Jesus' whole life is a trial, and this is just the opening discussion of that trial. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, again, he means trust, believe in the gospel. Interestingly, just after hearing that we have this symbolic test or the beginning of the trial of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, so to speak, John is arrested. So Jesus is already undergoing a test and John now has been taken into custody. And Jesus comes into Galilee. So John has been arrested, but Jesus, having endured the first test, is coming to Galilee to preach the gospel of God. It's so funny, it reminds me of the way Paul talks in his letters. Paul is a prisoner, and the gospel that he preaches is not his gospel, it comes from God. And even if Paul is erased, the gospel abides. After we saw that John said, there's coming one after me, John recedes, he can no longer go out to preach. He can no longer baptize in Jordan. And now we have the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit who's coming through. And how does he baptize with the Holy Spirit? By beginning to preach the gospel. The time is fulfilled, meaning the time has now come. It's now the end times. The kingdom of God, which of course is like we said, the inheritance that Jesus receives is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So now he's saying, look, you guys, I am appointed of God. Now I get to say who's in the kingdom and who isn't in the kingdom. I'm telling you, I'm here to make sure that everyone is prepared to be in the kingdom if you so choose. So here's the gospel. Now it's time for you to make your choice and to act accordingly. And again, it's interesting to note here that in Mark, he hasn't even reached Jerusalem. Jerusalem is ignored. People still don't get it. They still talk as though Christianity came from Jerusalem and that's the birthplace of the Bible. That's all baloney. Jerusalem did not give the Bible to the world. God gave the Bible to the world. It had to be from the wilderness that the word came. We have the motif of Genesis like we were saying before, but of course we have the motif of Exodus too, where the people had to go out into the wilderness to receive the word at Sinai, 
before they could enter into the promised land. They did not receive the word of God in the promised land. They did not receive the word in Egypt. It was in the middle, in Nowheresville. And Jesus had to go from Palookaville to Nowheresville in order to receive the word. But then he just went right back to Palookaville up in Nazareth, in Galilee, where there's nothing. So when a state or a church claim that they gifted the Bible to the world, they are committing apostasy. They are going against Ezekiel and now against Mark. The word is the word of the Father. It comes from God. And either you believe in God or you don't. And to my ears, when people claim that they wrote the Bible and they gave the Bible and so forth, and there are many institutions that talk this way, not just one, they are wittingly or unwittingly assuming the role of God. The word came from outside of civilization. You cannot spread the word by spreading a civilization. A clash of civilizations, the advancement of a civilization, will not promote the gospel because the word is independent and outside of civilization. And from God. And God is pleased, as we hear in Mark, with his word. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.